First Thessalonians chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. That you walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When Paul made it to Salonica, just south of Amphipolis and Apollonia, he walked into a world of religious chicanery and fakery. They had temples to Artemis and Athena, to Zeus and Ares. They had the mystery religions from the east, and they had the Greek and the Roman culture firmly entrenched. As a matter of fact, you could find godmen from India and you could find all kinds of different people making all kinds of different claims. And as Paul walked into this world, a lot of people thought that he might be a religious fake and a religious charlatan. You know, um, the World Parliament of Religions is going to be coming soon to Melbourne, Australia. The Parliament of Religions first was held in 1893 in Chicago at the Chicago World's Fair. It was repeated a hundred years later in 1993. And now people like the Dalai Lama and people who are avatars and Buddhists and Confucius and you name it from A to Z to Zoroastrianism, everyone and their mother will show up at the World Parliament of Religions. As a matter of fact, many years ago, there was a man named W. Neal who wrote about the religious times in which Paul plants the church in Thessalonica. He writes, there has probably never been such a variety of religions and cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West had united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition and gross license, oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference, 
holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical, unquote. That is a perfect picture. Because into that picture, the religious leaders, particularly the Jews of Thessalonica, thought that Paul might be a crackpot just like many crackpots. You know, some births are easy and some births are difficult. And for Paul, he is both mother and father, if you will, to the church at Thessalonica. Early on, assaults were made on his character and on his message. What better way to destroy the church than to kill the children? And so the very people who should have accepted the message, the very people who should have embraced the gospel, rejected Paul and filled the Thessalonians with innuendo, accusation and and um, what's the other word I'm looking for? Who cares? Accusation. We'll just go with that. They were defaming Paul and the others. And clearly, Paul wants to strengthen and encourage and support the new believers. The word I was looking for was accusation and rumor. And both of you, many of you know that something doesn't necessarily have to be true in order to be believed. And so the religious leaders in Thessalonica knew that if they could assassinate Paul's character, they might be able to kill this church right from the start. By the way, if Paul wasn't a valid minister, if he wasn't a true minister with a true gospel, then maybe the people in Thessalonica weren't really saved. Maybe they weren't eternally delivered from their sin. Maybe they weren't going to heaven after all. And so Paul wants to correct that misunderstanding. The most influential minister, the most influential Christian leader doesn't simply share the truth, but is willing to also share their lives. And so Paul knew that he was going to have to address that accusation and that innuendo. He knew that he would have to communicate what the characteristics were of a godly man and a godly woman who want to serve the Lord. And so we look at the model minister's manner of life. Look in verse 1 again. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Two times earlier, Paul had appealed to his manner of life. In chapter 1, verse 5, at the end of the verse, it says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And in verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. If Paul could be proved to be a failure, if, he, if they could create a sufficient amount of suspicion then it could maybe be proved that Paul's ministry and Paul's gospel was a fake. As a matter of fact, in verse 1, where it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. The word vain is the Greek word kenos. It means empty, ineffective, fruitless. But here was part of the challenge. They accused 
Paul's ministry of not mattering. But the people of Thessalonica had heard the gospel and they had experienced genuine repentance and new life in Jesus Christ. When Paul came and he preached the gospel, people believed it. They turned from their sin and they turned to the Savior. And you have to understand just how remarkable this is. Because they're living in a world where when you hear the news that the ancient scriptures have come true and that Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, but he's the world's Messiah. This is unbelievable. But the moment that they embraced the truth about Jesus Christ and they understood that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for sin so that you could experience hope and forgiveness. Some of them took the chance and said, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that is in fact true. And Paul writes that they turned from their idolatry to embrace the true and the living God. They were living for Jesus right in the hurricane storm of affliction and pain and persecution. And so the claim that Paul's ministry didn't matter and that the gospel that he preached was false wasn't true in their lives. Just like the gospel is true in your life. There have been doubts and suspicions and accusations. Maybe people have questioned the reality of Jesus in your life. Maybe you've questioned the reality of Jesus in your own life. But one of two things is true. Christ has come into your heart and forgiven you and placed you in, in his eternal kingdom. Or he hasn't. And for those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you know the powerful truth concerning the gospel. Clearly, the Lord had his hand on Paul and Paul's ministry team. And look at verse two. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Paul points out that this isn't the first time the missionary team had suffered. They suffered in Philippi and they suffered in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. You'll remember the call from the man from Macedonia. Paul goes through Neapolis. He winds up in Philippi. You'll remember that they cast out a demon from a demon-possessed fortune-telling lady. They throw him in prison. There is a gigantic earthquake. The, the, the person who heads up the prison attempts to commit suicide. Paul and Silas stop them. Share Christ with them. Give them the gospel. He's transformed. His entire family hears the gospel and is saved. They come to Thessalonica. As they come to Thessalonica for three weeks in a row, Paul preaches the gospel in the synagogue. And late at night, he goes from door to door telling the true story of Jesus's life and Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. It creates such a controversy, such a storm that the people in Thessalonica storm the city. They have Paul and Silas thrown out. Jason is arrested. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Paul could cause a riot in a day simply by preaching the gospel. And so 
He uses a, a term, but even after we had suffered before, and look at in verse 2, a very special expression, we're spitefully treated. It's a single Greek verb, hybridzo. You're going to know that word. It's come down in our own language as hybrid. When you put things together, it's a strong word. It's found five times in the Greek New Testament in Matthew 22:6, and Luke 11:45, Luke 18:32, and Acts 14:5. The word is related to a root word, hybris, which has the idea of insult or insolence. In the Greek language, it was used to describe infliction and humiliation. In this particular instance, we might even go so far as to use the word defamation. In other words, there is mental and personal humiliation. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Paul and Silas have been physically abused. They've been mentally and emotionally humiliated. And it's under those circumstances that they're bold in God to speak the gospel of God. The New Testament gives us a, a character portrait of Paul, of a man who is humble. And if you were to meet him, I think that the very first thing that you would be most impressed about is how physically unassuming he was. We have a description from the ancient world that he was just a little tiny guy, that his eyebrows grew together and he had a hooked nose. As a matter of fact, if you saw him, you might think that he looked sort of more like Danny DeVito than Charlton Heston. He's a little guy, but without the attitude. Now, the Bible points out to us that he is unassuming in his speech, but he's bold in his writing. So the model minister is willing to preach in a bold fashion in spite of opposition. When he says bold in our God to preach the gospel of God. He's not talking about simply pointing out error. As a matter of fact, the word bold is a way, way long word in the Greek language. It's about 13 letters long. As a matter of fact, it has a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. And the word bold meant to speak out, but it meant more than that. It meant to speak freely, and it even meant more than that. It meant to speak out, speak freely, speak publicly, but it even meant more than that. It meant to speak out, speak freely, but also to speak without fear. It meant to speak in such a way that you were willing to embrace the consequences. Paul and his team preached the truth about Jesus without apology. Do you know what that also means? The boldness was a boldness that said, we must preach not just what we think that you want to hear, but the whole gospel. And the whole gospel, of course, was that human beings were sinners in need of a savior. That the whole world was lying under an imminent threat of judgment. That heaven was real and that hell had to be avoided at all costs. And so they told the story of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. 
And Paul told the story of his own life, how he himself was an observant Jew, a Pharisee who had observed the law, who had ran from God, who had neglected and rejected that Jesus was God's Messiah until Jesus himself showed up in his own life. So Paul adds, in much conflict. The Old King James translates this with much contention, but the text means in spite of strong opposition. The New American Standard even translates this in the middle of much opposition. The text literally reads, in polo agonoi. Agon is a word that you're going to know. We get the word agony from it. The word we use in our own culture and in the English language, it means much pain. But here in the the first world, in the first century of the Greek world, it meant a contest or a struggle. For those of you who stayed home on Thanksgiving Day, you might have watched some football. You might have watched the Broncos beat the Giants. Yeah, and in, in spite of my lack of faith, hey, I didn't go in thinking they're going to win. Oh, ye of little faith. But when you watch these players, these professional players play, they have poured out their physical and mental and emotional energies in order to win this contest. That is the word in polo agonoi. It means it's an expenditure of physical and mental and emotional energy. So if the picture that you have of Paul is a little guy going door to door going... Anyone ever tell you the good news about Jesus? You would be getting the wrong picture. In verse 3 it says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. By the way, in verse 3 where it says, For our exhortation is the Greek word paraklesis. It occurs some 29 times in the Greek New Testament. It's regularly translated consolation. Exhortation, comfort. It's six times it's, it's translated time. And one time it's translated entreaty. It's related to the verb parakleia, which literally meant to call alongside for the purpose of rendering aid for our exhortation. The word exhortation carries with it the idea of an urgent appeal. It's an urgent appeal that is beneficial to the one listening. It's, an, it's a powerful and a persuasive appeal. If I were to use it in words that maybe translate to our own culture, it's a AAA card. Some of you have AAA. When you break down in the middle of nowhere, you pull out the card and you call the number on the back and they send a tow truck to find you. Now, if you have a four-wheel drive like I have, you can, you can go places where people can never find you. But AAA will at least attempt to find you. And this is the urgent appeal that he's talking about. And the urgent appeal was the urgent appeal to listen to the message of hope. That your sin matters. And that your salvation matters. And that heaven really matters. As a matter of fact, the urgent appeal, he says, isn't based on a false premise. Our exhortation didn't come from error. 
The word error is an interesting word. It's an astronomical word. It was used for stargazers who would watch the planets and the stars in their paths. And there was a particular word that was used to describe when a heavenly body went off course. It's this word. He is, in effect, saying that our exhortation didn't go off course. Paul didn't add it to the gospel and he didn't subtract the gospel. There are those people who say, well, you know, careful reading of the New Testament and you see the gospel of Matthew and you see the gospel of Mark and you see the gospel of Luke and you see the gospel of John. And, and Paul made up his own gospel. Nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel written of in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John testified concerning the person of Paul, the apostle. Paul is in effect saying, I didn't add to the gospel and I didn't subtract from the gospel. The model minister preaches a pure gospel and he doesn't attempt to hide or ignore the hard sayings of Jesus. This same Jesus who said, allow the children to come to me is the same Jesus who overturned the money tables in the temple. The same Jesus that touched the blind man's eyes with sensitivity and compassion angered the religious leaders in a series of sermons that exposed their hypocrisy and their wickedness and their false religion. Do you understand what he's saying? He doesn't make up a message in order to suit his hearers. Now, I want you to think just for a moment what Paul is writing about. In the first verse, he says the model minister preaches boldly. In the second verse, Paul points out that the model minister preaches a pure gospel and lives a clean life and doesn't deceive the people. That's what it means when it says our exhortation didn't come from error. I'm giving you the full gospel or uncleanness. That means impurity. And it's a word that would describe the impurity that would take place in the streets of Athens in Salonika as people would go to the temples of public prostitution and defile themselves with themselves. Earlier in our service, we were we were singing, we were worshiping the Lord and some of us sang the song. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Do you remember when you sang that? Some of you did. Some of you sang it and some of you even meant it. When you were singing the song, you were in effect inviting the Lord to cause you to enter into a life of purity instead of impurity. Purity in your thinking and purity in your living. Purity in your heart. That's what he's talking about. The real minister, the model minister preaches a pure gospel, lives a clean life, and decides not to deceive people. You would almost think, duh. There's a reason why people in, in the outside world are suspicious of people who only seem to preach what they want to say. Well, you know, we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. 
But Paul preaches a message not with the purpose of offending or hurting, but rather for a purpose of offending the person who is lost in their sin. Paul will allow the gospel itself to wound the heart and offend the sinner so that they could recognize the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. When religious leaders preach a corrupt gospel and live an impure life and practice deceit, it's a recipe for hypocrisy. And so he says in verse four, look what it says. But as we have been, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Now think about what he's saying. He's anticipating the accusation and the innuendo against himself and his ministry. The model minister has a full and fruitful ministry. Their hearts are changed. Verse 2, he preaches boldly. He preaches a pure gospel, lives a clean life, doesn't deceive the people. And now we discover that the model minister preaches to please God and not men. Here's his point. If I'm a man pleaser instead of a God pleaser, then why would I give you the unvarnished gospel? Why? Now, just do the math here for a moment. Well, I'm willing to believe and concede that there was a Jesus, and I'm willing to believe and concede that he died on a cross. But I'm not so sure about this whole rising from the dead thing, because people don't really come back to life, you know, in real life. And Paul argues that Matthew and Peter and John along with 500 people, witnessed a real resurrected Jesus, that a real Jesus really came and really died and really rose from the dead, that he was, in fact, who he said he was. Okay, all right, I'm willing to concede that he rose from the dead, but you know what really bothers me? It's the exclusive claims. You know, that whole thing about Jesus being the only way. And Paul remembers what the Apostle John told him. It was Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile. Whether you're religious or irreligious. Whether you're a Greek philosopher. The remedy for sin is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, and he creates a a, a riot in Thessalonica. Does this sound like a guy who gets on Larry King Live and goes, well, you know, I I just don't really want to, you know, personally, Larry, I believe in hell, but I I don't want to push my thing on anybody else. You understand exactly what I'm saying. If Paul was interested in pleasing human beings, if Paul was interested in a polite discussion concerning religious ideology, how do you explain his swollen face and how do you explain the marks on his back? And so Paul says, We have been approved by God. Look what it says in verse four. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that word approved is a very interesting word in the original language. It's 
Dokimazo. Dokimazo. It's the perfect passive indicative. It's a word that meant to test or examine or to prove or to scrutinize. You know, with the collapse of currencies and our own dollar plummeting quickly, gold and silver are rising. And so if you go to a coin shop or if you go to a jewelry shop and you turn in gold or silver, they, they bring out little things that test the gold and test the, the silver to see whether or not it's true. If you are a person unlike me who can still put a $100 bill in your wallet and you actually take it to King Supers, they'll take that little pin and then they'll mark it to see if your bill is real. And you go, it's real. I just made it this morning. Look how fresh and clean. No, you don't want to say that. You don't want to, you don't want to reinforce the uh, suspicion. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. God has examined their hearts and determined that they are authentic. The passage could be, be rendered, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with this business of pointing people to the way of salvation. And the word, by the way, is repeated, dokimazo, at the end of the sentence, but God who tests, present participle, our hearts. In other words, it's a play on words. But as we have been authenticated and approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who has authenticated and tested our own hearts. Here's the idea. The people in Thessalonica could look on the outward circumstances of Paul's life and Paul's ministry. It would have been easy for them to say, I've, I've been watching you. I've been watching you. I watch how you conduct yourself among yourself. But he's in effect even saying, look. Even if you aren't able to tell what manner of person I am, God knows the truth about me. Paul would, would, wouldn't have done well in a modern church where the pastor only preaches those things or those subjects that don't, that, that don't rock the boat or don't create controversy. Paul isn't preaching for the purpose of generating fan mail or approval. Paul refuses to neglect The issue of sin and the issue of judgment. He has to talk about it. And the reason why he has to talk about it, it's because sinners need a savior. He has to talk about it. It's because the wicked and the corrupt and the vile heart is the one that's in need of transformation. And in verse five, it says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. The word covetousness, of course, is a word that is very difficult for us to understand in our culture, in our society. But it, it, it's a word that just simply means to want more and more and more of what you already have enough of. Well, 50 pairs of shoes aren't enough. I have to have 300 pairs of shoes. Three cars aren't enough. I have to have five cars. This isn't enough. I have to have more and more and more. Now, I want you to just think about what, what you've read so far. The model minister, the real servant, number one, has a full and a fruitful ministry, not a fruitless ministry. Verse two, 
he or she preaches boldly. Verse 3, they preach a pure gospel from a clean heart and a pure life, and they refuse to deceive people. Verse 4, they preach to please God and not human beings. Verse 5, the real minister, the real servant leader, doesn't preach for what he or she can get out of it. In order to be rich. My pastor, Chuck Smith, used to despise men who would come to the church and embrace what he called poor mouthing. Do you know what poor mouthing is? Poor mouthing is where you go, well, brothers and sisters, join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know these old shoes that I've been wearing for the past eight years with holes on the bottom. But Lord, for eight years I've had these shoes and I haven't complained. But Lord, should you in your beneficent mercy wish to provide me with a new pair of shoes? 9D. Lord, I will see it as a sign of your favor. That's poor mouthing. Poor mouthing is using the pulpit as a platform in order to get stuff for yourself. By the way, the phrase flattering words is a single Greek word. Kolakia. It's only here in the Greek New Testament. That word, flattering words, kolakia, Aristotle, in his writings, he used the word to invoke the idea of selfish motives, not flattery for the purpose of giving pleasure to the others, but simply for the sake of self-interest. Clearly, Paul is either addressing a charge or anticipating a charge. And addressing the charge and anticipating the charges, he's only in it for the money. He's only in it for the money. Nor a cloak, porphosis, a pretext. That's what a cloak does. A cloak covers one thing. Paul doesn't abuse or misuse his apostolic office in order to gain an advantage or secure personal acceptance or to, to generate a following. Paul is simply the messenger of God with a message from God. And because he's the messenger of God with a message from God, he doesn't feel that he has the right to change the message. Even if he knows that it will hurt your feelings. Even if it means he won't give to your ministry. He's unwilling to change the message in order to accommodate a person's, a person's sin. But the person who refuses to leave idolatry embrace Jesus. For the person who won't even acknowledge that there is that they have sin or, or, or that there is even such a thing as hell to be avoided. Paul was sincere. He was free from covetousness. He refused self-seeking glory. He reminds them, as you know. And God is my witness. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying anyone can say anything they want about me 
But you remember. You remember when I was there with you. You remembered how my face had been beaten black and blue. You remembered the stripes on my back. You remember the death threats. You remember how they came into Jason's house and arrested him in front of everyone. You remember how we had to be left on a basket over the wall just in order to save our own life. And in verse 6 it says, nor did we seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. The model minister doesn't preach for self-glory, for prestige, or because of some exalted sense of self. And the word demands, nor did we make demands. It's, it's the word baros. It means to be a burden. Now we live in a culture and a society that promotes self-sufficiencies and you don't want to be a burden. Maybe your grandfather or your mother and father, they said something. Well, you, you know, we don't want to be a burden on you. We don't want to be a burden. I plan to be a burden to my children. That's the plan. Eighteen years. Eighteen years with the oldest and the middle and, and the third. Actually, let's just be fair. It's way more than 18 years. So if I can squeeze two, two years out of each of them, that isn't such a big deal. They're a part of my retirement package. Paul says we could have made demands. A father can make a demand to a child. And Paul says, I came. And there's a church where there wasn't a church. There are saved people where there weren't saved people. I could have asserted my authority if Paul were ambitious, if he were money hungry, if he were power crazy. Then how do you explain his sacrifice? Paul did what he did for the glory of God and not for personal gain. And the model minister not only doesn't preach a false gospel in order to secure personal following or earn a living or seem respectable or to live a comfortable life. He foregoes all of those things. And he reminds them in verse 7, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. The model minister is a full and fruitful ministry, not vain and fruitless, verse 1. The model minister preaches boldly, verse 2. The model minister preaches a pure gospel and lives a clean life and refuses to deceive the people. That's verse 3. Preaches to please God and not man. That's verse 4. Doesn't preach for self-serving and self-seeking interest. That's verse 5. Doesn't preach for glory or prestige or honor or the authority of position in verse 6. And does it gently and lovingly in verses 7 and 8. The word gentle is a beautiful word in the original language. Some manuscripts have epoi, which means children. Some scholars have said that Paul is talking baby talk to babies so that they can understand the conversation. I don't think so. I think the word is gentle. And he uses the term a nursing mother, tropos. It's a beautiful word. 
In the ancient Greek culture, the word trepo meant to give food. And the word tropos, as it was applied to a nursing mother, meant a mother who tenderly provides, gently nourishes. Now, I know it's possible to have a bad mom. I know that as, as, as soon as I say this, we're going to get the one psycho person, Anthony, per, you know, where you had the mother who was weird and, you know, with the knife. And, mm, 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 mm. Is it possible that there are bad moms? Yes, it's possible. But most moms are gentle and comforting and nourishing. Most cultures and most traditions, it's the picture of care and love and provision and personal sacrifice and protection and true affection. For those of us in our hearts, we know that mothers are designed by God to be sensitive to the needs of their children. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. A mother is designed by God to anticipate a child's need, to anticipate a child's hope and fear. And I'm going to ask you mothers a question. Is it possible to be a mother a long, long way from your baby? No. The very fact of motherhood requires intimacy and proximity and care. And that's the point that Paul is making. He is not a pastor from a distance. He's up close and personal. Paul's not a theological nanny. Look, I'll take care of the kids and now it's your turn. He loves up close and personal. You see, the model minister reflects sensitivity and compassion up close. And look what he says in verse 8, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to import to you or impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become agapetoi. Dearly beloved, from the root word agape, tenderly loved, deeply cherished. <laughs> the model minister, the servant leader, is sensitive to needs and affectionate towards people. Without being weird. I have to throw that in, don't I? Because it's one thing to be tender. And affectionate. And it's another thing to be weird. I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about being weird. Paul has poured his life and his soul into them. He sacrificed for them. So that they would come to Jesus and experience forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And guess what? A person... When they see the compassion and sensitivity in your eyes. Then all of a sudden you understand something that their life is genuine. So what is Paul saying? The model 
sensitive to needs, loving and affectionate without, without being weird. And in verse 9, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Over the weekend, I was reading a history book from uh, Will and Ariel Durant concerning the Revolutionary War. And there was a, a riot in Philadelphia because the people were tired of working 12 hour days, six days a week. And so they introduced a revolutionary concept to work 10 hours a day, six days a week. Now, you have to understand something. They'd already went from 15 hours a day to 10 hours a day. Excuse me. 15 hours a day to 12 hours a day. And in that culture and society, you were thought to be lazy. I mean, what lazy person in their right mind would only work 10 hours a day for six days. Now you have to understand something. In Paul's day, in Saloniki, when they're coming and they're working, when he's talking about, for you, brethren, our labor and toil, the first noun, labor, kapos, toil, mokthos, it, it, it meant a blow or a bruise. We have a, a word that we use in our culture and society, wear and tear. We don't typically apply it to people. But there was a time when you would put a burden on people. We usually do it on our cars now. Some of you may have a new car with zero miles and there's no wear and tear. And some of you will have what is at least a new car to you, 20,000 miles. Some of you have had cars with 100,000 miles. Some of you have had cars, Volkswagens, with 247,000 miles. After 247,000 miles, you see the wear and the tear. And Paul is describing wear and tear. We might use the term labor and hardship or toil and hardship. Paul is describing the life that he lived when he was with them at Thessalonica, how he would work 15 hours a day. And when the sun had set and then he would go from house to house and street to street and he would tell the story and he would tell the story over and over again of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the story of Jesus, how he loves you and died for you. And if you embrace him as your Lord and Savior, you can experience the same thing. And he does it over and over and over again. And Paul and Silas and Timothy considered themselves expendable. So that the people in Thessalonica would really know Jesus and really love Jesus and really experience the forgiveness and the hope that's found in Jesus. And so he's willing to work all day so he can preach all night. And look what it says in verse 10. You are witnesses. And God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. In other words, the men and women of Thessaloniki were witnesses. They were able to judge Paul's behavior. And they were able to judge his heart. Because they were with him. 
Paul's motive for ministry was to please God and not men. That's what we learned in verse four. And the laundry list of motives are contained in what Paul and others did and did not do. They refuse flattery. And the Irish, the Irish have a way of saying it. That Paul and Silas didn't kiss the Blarney stone. Some of you know what that means. They didn't use speech in order to butter people up in order to get what they wanted. Not for greed. Not for glory. And not even for deserved rights. Paul reminds them of his own personal purity. When he says, you are witnesses how devoutly and justly. The word justly could easily be translated with righteousness. Here, the word means a proper conduct towards everyone we met. Towards men. Towards women. Towards children. And blameless means without defect. It means we acted appropriately each and every time. And in verse 11, it says, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Paul changes the metaphor from a caring and a concerned mother to a doting father. And he exercises a father's authority as well as a mother's attitude. Harold J. Okenga, a great preacher from the past, says, quote, as a father, he exhorted the wavering. He encouraged the tested. He charged the tempted. He adopted his attitude towards their needs in in order to establish them in Jesus Christ, all this was to lead them to a walk worthy of God who had called them into his kingdom and glory. The model minister, like a father, testifies, protects, warns. Paul gives an enthusiastic affirmation. Think of Paul the apostle like a holy cheerleader. You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. For one reason, and look what it says in verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The model minister preaches with a simple, single objective. It's the edification of the believer. It's the building up of the believer. If I were to sum this up in a single sentence, do you know what it would be? The minister prepares each and every person he or she comes in contact with for heaven. That's exactly what you're doing, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not. Each and every person that you meet. You're preparing them to meet God, to meet Jesus. And that's why the walk that Paul refers to, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's talking about the present conduct, which leads to a future reward. The model minister, the servant leader, provides a kind of inspiring influence. You know, on Thanksgiving Day, 
Coaches want to ignite a blazing desire on the part of the athletes to go further, play harder, want victory. And you may not think of yourself as a minister. But that's exactly what you are. You are God's servant. With God's message. And you don't have permission to change the message. Or to alter the message. In order to please the person that you're speaking to. So how are you different from the religious charlatans and the spiritual frauds and the holy hucksters who deceive and trick and cheat people every single day? This is what Paul says. I have a full and fruitful ministry in your evidence. I preach to you the gospel boldly. I've communicated the whole gospel. I've lived a pure life and I've acted in integrity towards you. I refuse to please others in order to please God. I don't see the ministry as a means of gain. I don't preach for glory or prestige or authority or position. And I exercise genuine affection and tender compassion. And I got close enough to you so that you could see it in my eyes. Those are the questions you need to ask yourself. Look at verse 1 again. Do you have a full and fruitful ministry? Or is it vain and empty? Look at verse 2 again. Do you preach the gospel boldly or have you joined with the half-hearted doubters? Look at verse 3. Do you communicate the whole gospel, live a pure life, and refuse to deceive others? Look at verse 4. Are you pleasing to God? Or are you seeking to please others? Look at verse 5. Do you see the ministry as a means of gain? Look at verse 6. Do you preach for glory or authority or position? Look at verse 7. Do you exercise genuine affection and tender compassion? Verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 9. Do you labor to the point of exhaustion for the privilege of serving? And by the way, it is a privilege. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to minister. It is a privilege to be able to serve. Do people look at your life and see honesty and purity and wisdom? And when they meet you, do they feel like they've come just a little bit closer to heaven? We've looked at the birth of the church and the model church and the model minister. But there's way more. We have to stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, these men and women who you've entrusted with the gospel that Jesus came from heaven to live a perfect life and die on a cross and rise from the dead. That this Jesus can forgive sins. That this Jesus can restore hope and peace. That this Jesus makes every, everything different. Lord, I pray that... I pray that people wouldn't give themselves permission to change the message. In order to accommodate doubt and fear and disappointment. 
but they would preach with boldness and confidence that a real Jesus is still in the business of changing real people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.